Let's continue to worship our Lord with the Word of God. We'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And today's sermon is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 10 from verse 1 to 6. 1 to 6. Please turn your Bible with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 to 6. For the rest of us, you can refer to the uh, slides uh, over here. For you at home, hope that you join us in the reading of the Word and hearing the Word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble, when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect of us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. <clears throat> Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Oh dear Heavenly Father, we call you Father because you know us deeply. You know what we need. You know what we have gone through for the week. And Lord, as we gather here as the people of God, Lord, help us to open our hearts and minds to what you have to say, not of man's word, but indeed your word. Lord, then I pray for myself as an instrument of Christ, that I may speak accordingly, that your word is truth. Help me, Lord, help all of us. In Christ's name, I do pray. Amen. Thomas E. Bachler wrote an insightful book called The Juvenization of American Christianity. And that was about 10 years ago. In his book, he traces the history of development of how the churches in America have produced immature Christians and Christianity. Now, the sad news is that America or American evangelicals have reflected the worldly culture of their society, the juvenization of their society, the immaturity of their society. And furthermore, they bring that into the church. For example, older people don't want to admit they are aging. Evidently, you know, celebrities and even politicians over their 50s, 60s, and 70s even posted pictures on social media suggesting that they look like the brothers and sisters of their adult children. Then in recent years, in Singapore, the word adulting became a buzzword for young people grappling with life's responsibilities, finally. I've got a skeptic here 
you have observed that there were and are many calling themselves Christians over the years and the last few decades of uh, mega evangelism efforts. Yet, many have also fallen. Most obvious when COVID hits the world. There's some statistics that has been published. You can search that out for yourself, either in the world or in Singapore. In fact, there was a survey done and uh, it doesn't speak very well of our condition. Then there are also many remaining mediocre or lukewarm as just now Elder Airy, right, lead us to confess. And many remain as infants of the faith. Only some have been growing, but even fewer are reaching maturity in Christ. Now that may sound like maybe doom and gloom for Christianity, but the good news is this, that God has been maturing the church since Jesus came. Now the historical church has been teaching about the immaturity of Christians, and this is not something new. Back in the first century, the author of the book of Hebrews, he warns the church. From verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, he says this. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracle of God. You need milk, not solid food. In the same way, the Apostle Paul was facing the immaturity of the church of Corinth here. And for that reason, in the opening verses of chapter 10, from verses 1 to 6, he flashes out the characteristics and the traits of a mature disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, he did not immediately present his arguments to defend his work uh, of church ministries, and that was his purpose, and he is his purpose in the, sec, uh, book, uh, uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians. He was restraining himself from using his apostolic, apostolic authority given by Christ. His authority was also endorsed by the larger church body in the known Christian world at time, notably Macedonian and Jerusalem. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is about Paul's apologetics, the defense of his Christian faith and the gospel truths of Jesus. Now, while he defends his faith, he was also offering his pastoral concerns and counsel through giving his reasons for restraining his judgment on the church. He's an apostle. From verses 7 onwards, Paul offered his reasons and arguments in his writing to justify his genuine apostleship. Now, the, his opponents uh, were there to proclaim actually another Jesus, another gospel than Paul has preached. And they presented themselves as super apostles to Paul. They presented themselves as, a, as much better than Paul in skills of speech and knowledge. Now, the church of Corinth bought into their claims, those super apostles, since they were immature. Accordingly, Paul's first task 
was to encourage them to become mature by simply showing them the traits of maturity of himself in the opening verses from 1 to 6 in our text today. And that brings us to the big idea of this sermon. Christian maturity is vital for contending the gospel truths of Jesus. I say again, Christian maturity is vital for contenting the gospel truths of Jesus. Now, it may, some, it may surprise some of the skeptics or even the skeptics here that the text is not primarily discussing the evangelism effort or even spiritual warfare as some have supposed. Some Bible scholars and pastors and I contend that Paul's primary goal was to establish what Christian maturity looks like before them. Before he makes this argument, of course, why he wants to cushion the effect of his argument, not sugarcoating it by stating the matter of fact. But first, he really wants to show Christian maturity as even he argues. So we may ask, Everybody now, is that necessary today? I would say absolutely. Slightly, again, less than 10 years ago, about the same time when the juvenization of the American church or American Christianity came out, I asked the question, what is the gospel? You see, in Singapore, at least in the circle I knew back then, couldn't give me a satisfactory answer of simply, what is the gospel? Halfway through seminary study just a couple of years ago, six years ago, I was still grappling with that question. As a good seminary student, I began with the biblical definition of the word gospel in the Greek, evangelion. But to realize that the meaning of the word, and you good media students, you know that the meaning of the word relies on the phrase constructed. You can't just take the word just a single word and try to make sense out of it. We all know that. And you have to ask, who, who's the gospel for? Uh, who's, <coughs> whose gospel is it? <coughs> and who the gospel is for? Then finally, how the gospel is experienced, not just by a new believer, but throughout the life of a Christian. The gospel, good news, is simple enough for even a child here, even yourself here, to know and to understand, repent, and confess faith in Jesus Christ. However, the gospel is not simplistic for living it out. Even Peter, the apostle Peter, by the way, admitted in 2 Peter, and he says this about uh, uh, Paul's writing. He found it difficult to understand, right? That, and leave out some of Paul's writing. Uh, there are just some parts of the Bible that requires a Christian to wrestle, grow, and be guided to maturity, to grasp and leave out the gospel truths. So what does, what does it look like for a mature Christian? Or put it another way, what characteristics or traits that a Christian would work towards to become mature. Now, in our text, Paul reminds the church of Corinth the three tra traits of Christian maturity that is vital for contending for the truth 
of the gospel of Jesus. Now, the first trait is the meekness and gentleness of the heart. Now, some in the church of Corinth would have perceived that Paul was, in fact, inconsistent. When they read his letters, he would seem to be bold. His word would seem loud in bold fonts, right? Like some of your text messages, right? If you put in bold fonts, you know that your, your friends are literally almost shouting at you. At first, actually, I didn't get it. I thought it was like trying to highlight. You know? I didn't know the culture is that now bold fonts, or rather capital fonts, are basically shouting. I, I didn't know that. I thought it was, hey, oh, you're trying to highlight this. Uh, very, very good. Huh? So, but now I know. Right? Both fonts or capitals means shouting. The loudness is to the extent where John Calvin commanded, uh, commanded that Paul's letters sound like thunder, thunder to the Corinthians when they read his letters. But when Paul met with the Corinthians face to face, he appeared to be humble. He appeared lower than he is. He appeared to be lowly himself as as if, in fact, he was, uh, or rather presumed that he was timid to some of them. They didn't know that he was exercising meekness and gentleness. He was meek, as in he was firm, confident, yet not arrogant. He was gentle, as in he was mellow, right? And that uh, some of... As, at least I can speak of myself, I mellow out uh, as I age. Okay, I say as I age, I mellow out as well. He was gentle to tolerate, tolerate the immature Christian who sought to grow, yet not soft like cotton candy. The trait of meekness and gentleness is not just outward behavior. It is a trait that deals with the heart. The trait is not so much like Teaming, I know, taming, taming a wild beast. The trait is a gift of God when believer is born again with a new heart. In God's covenant of grace with his stubborn people, he told his prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel that God promised to do a surgical work in his chosen ones. And the book of Hebrews reveals God's promise fulfilled in Christ's new covenant. Jesus gives of himself. Jesus gave his heart to replace the hearts of his people in his church. The church then receives a new heart when Jesus gave his heart on the cross. And what is the trait of Jesus' heart, you might then ask. There is only one place in the Bible where Jesus revealed his heart directly to all of us. In Matthew chapter 11, 29-30, he encourages his disciples saying this, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart or in the heart. And from here, Jesus showed his meekness and gentleness when Judas betrayed him, dishonored him, and dishonored by his own people in the courtrooms. He was meek to the Roman soldiers who spat and scorned him. And even at the cross, Jesus was gentle to the thief who 
who eventually confessed faith in Him. Paul was learning from Jesus to mature in, in Christ's meekness and gentleness. So how does one mature in meekness and gentleness in Christ? Paul matured when he, he took the yoke and burden of Christ. Now let us hear Jesus' heartfelt words for Paul and us again in Matthew chapter 11, 29-30. He says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Heard that? Have you heard that? Do you hear Jesus' heart for you and I to mature? If you have heard that, then take up his yoke. And he promised that his burden is light and you will find rest for your souls. Christ gives you his yoke, his cross, to walk his path of suffering and commitment to the church not to break you and I, but to mature and give you and I rest at last. Now, to be sure, being meek and gentle does not mean condoning sins because Jesus and the Apostle Paul rebuked the Pharisees and those refusing to repent. Paul was not inconsistent as the church of Corinth supposed, that he thundered in his letter and was timid in their sight. Paul was consistent and in tune with the heart of Christ to win those who were self-considered and went astray. Paul knew best of Christ's heart because he was once self-considered and was astray. Jesus won Paul over with his heart of meekness and gentleness. When Jesus appeared to Paul supernaturally, Paul was won over by Jesus' heart of meekness and gentleness. And to satisfy Paul, Jesus' supernatural appearance squashed and destroyed even Paul's best arguments and opinions against Jesus and his apostles. Jesus was battling for Paul's heart and mine. Now, similarly, Paul battles to mature the church of Corinth, their hearts and mine. The first trait of maturity, he stated, is the meekness and gentleness of the heart. And he believed that the battle is not about winning people's emotion, but to win and renew the mind. In verse 3 to 5, he contends that the second trait of Maturity is the warfare of the mind. Now, when you are, and, you know, and some of us were or are in conflict, like in the church of Corinth, they thought and suspected that Paul and his disciples were walking in the flesh. In other words, they constructed a story in their minds thinking that Paul and his disciples were living in sin, yielding to their sinful pursuits. In their minds, they thought poorly of Paul and his disciples. In fact, they thought that Paul was immature. Ironically, that was the evidence that the church of Corinth was indeed 
immature. Why? They were warring against Paul and his disciples who converted them with the gospel in the first place. Paul and his disciples were supposed to be their teacher of the gospel truths. Now, can you then imagine that you doing Instagram, all right, or Telegram right now, a tweet, or even creating stories to bring down your teachers or uh, bring down those who were working to better your life? Starting from your spiritual life. And that was exactly what the church of Corinth did. Now, if they were mature, they should have been waging wars in their minds against the, against the ugly thoughts of bringing others down, especially their teachers of God's words. They should have stopped their emotions from running over their heads. They should have sought verifications and clarifications with the church leaders, elders, rather than being fixated on their make-up stories from their head their heart overflowing into their minds. Paul could have come down hard on the church of Corinth with his apostles' authority and judgment. Instead, he seized the opportunity to lift up Christ, lift up his trait of meekness and gentleness, lift him up and bring the gospel to them again. And look down with me in your Bible in verse 3. Paul waged war in the minds and declared, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Now, in the classic uh, gospel and reform sense, Paul admitted that they are all sinners walking in the flesh, but not of the flesh. They did not walk of the flesh because they fought their fleshly desires as Paul is restraining himself from thinking badly about the church of Corinth. The world's fleshly desire says, if you feel like this or that, then do what your emotions tell you. That is immaturity. Your, your, if your emotion tells you you feel like a girl, then be a girl. If you feel like a boy, then be a boy. Now, you feel like this or that, then let your emotions lead your minds in creating ungodly stories. You will lose your mind. Emotions are meant to inform, but the mind needs to filter, filter the emotions and show the heart the way. And someone once wisely said, emotions are good servants, but they are really bad masters. The warfare must be waged in the war, uh, in the minds, to push back the sinful desires from creating stories about others with our feelings. When we face discouragement, let us not fight one another. Let us not fight within ourselves, with our hearts. Let us do battle in our minds with the divine power of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Let us recapture our minds with the gospel before and even in the heat of an argument. That's why we need one another, especially when we have a heated argument. Let the gospel, the good news, triumph over everything 
every high views, high opinion we have. The high view of self says, I'm a victim. I have done nothing wrong. It's the other person's fault. Now, the gospel says this. I walk in the flesh, but not of the flesh. The high view of self-righteousness says, my offender is pure evil and dirt of the earth. The gospel says this. My offender is created in God's image, deserving dignity. The high view of social media says, destroy every other person against my justice. The gospel says, destroy every argument against the knowledge of God, but not the person. In verse 5, Bible commentators made the case that the knowledge of God that Paul was referring to is indeed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I affirm that the entire Bible is the knowledge of God, revealing the good news fulfilled in Christ Jesus. The war of the gospel of Jesus Christ in unbelievers takes place in the heart. But the war of the gospel of Christians takes place in the mind. The mind is the arena where Satan, the deceivers, fight against us and God. The knowing of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so the knowledge of man, ultimately take place in the Christian's mind, not primarily in the hearts. So I say again, for an unbeliever to become a believer, in some and a lot of cases, regeneration takes place in the heart, and that is so. That's why we preach and hit the heart. But when I'm preaching here, I want you to understand, it's not just the heart. Christian, you need to wage war in your minds. We must do warfare in our minds with the gospel. The knowing of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, again, ultimately, must take place in the minds. That's the reason some of our students in their break time, uh, recess, had fellowship with the book study of The God Who Is There by D.A. Carson. And that do them well. And I pray that continue to do you well. Now, brothers and sisters and friends, we must do warfare in our minds, especially in the social media age where evil seeks to solicit and draw us to react with our emotions. In a way, emotions against short circuits or even stop thoughtful response. We must prepare and will our mental and spiritual weapon. The Word of God and the Gospel must be our weapon of choice against our sins. That comes from our heart right into our mind, the sinful reactions. We must do warfare in our minds again with the gospel that we may obey God's word. So the first trait of maturity is the meekness and gentleness of the heart. The second trait, uh, the second trait is the warfare of the mind. And the third trait of maturity is the capture of the will. Now for the skeptics reading verse 5, you must be wondering, what in the world? You know, some of my... Younger ones will say, what in the world? You know, for the skeptic reading verse 5, you must be wondering, 
what Paul was talking about, taking every thought captive. Now, you are right to ask the question, but because most Christians assume we knew something or everything about Paul, uh, what Paul was talking about here. Now, a Bible commentator, again, he made a remark on this verse. What is remarkable is that it is thoughts which are to be taken captive. Perhaps Martin Luther had this passage in his mind when he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. For conscience needs to be informed if it is to, uh, to do its work properly. Now, what this means is that as Paul was writing his earlier uh, letter to the church of Corinth, especially you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 1-4, to God's wisdom is very different from that of the world's wisdom. And the Christian in receiving a new heart receives a new life. And is given the mind of Christ, a new way of thinking. Now this shows that wrong thinking is not always due to simply reasoning defects. All right? It's not about logic defects. It can be a willful commitment to an ungodly philosophy of life. All right? So in our dealings with skeptics, we often look for a point of contact, an entry point of a, like a, you know, they call it a gospel conversation. So some altar to an unknown God, like what Paul did when he visited Athens, right? However, there has to come to a point when we have to contend that God's wisdom and God's thinking is very different and it should cut right across the world's way of thought. In our text in verse 5, Paul is concerned for people to have the knowledge of God and yet at the same time to act in obedience to Christ. Now this points to Paul's concern of the mind and the will. The volition of a person. The will of a person needs to be captured like a lover's will is captured and moved to do seemingly, sometimes people in the world will say is the craziest thing that God says in the Bible. And that's the act of faith in Christ Jesus. Now, some of you may be wondering, why have you not grown or mature over the years in Christianity? And some of us may be lacking the meekness and gentleness in our hearts. Some of us may be lacking the warfare in our minds. Then perhaps most of us may be lacking the capture of the will in Christ simply to obey. Perhaps here is where Yoda, right, the Jedi master, uh, saying helps. Do or do not. There is no try. I want to say in his language, but uh, sometimes I, I joke with my Hebrew uh, professor, right, that the Hebrew actually sounds like that and it's true to some ways, okay? Do or do not. There is no try, okay? Taking every top captive to obey Christ is to capture our will and our volition. Do or do not. There is no try. It's not I feel like or feel like it or feel not. Not in a threatening way to say to do or not to do. It is either obedience or disobedience to God. Either one way or the other, there will be outcomes. There will be outcomes. In verse 6, 
Paul moved in his analogy from handling weapons to overcoming strongholds, and now he moves into taking captives to punishing the offenders and disobedience. And he writes about the completion of obedience by the Corinthians as if something which is still lies, uh, or something that still lies ahead in the future. Now, what does this imply then? He writes about the completion of the obedience by the Christians. Perhaps that the offenders at the church still retain some sympathizers among the general body of the believers there. And Paul felt the need for this punishment to wait until all the main body saw the need for discipling and disciplining them. He was concerned not only to do the right thing, but he wants to do it at the right time. Not too soon and not too late from the matter at hand. This suggests that he saw private or public church discipline not something to be simply imposed from the outside, not even by an apostle, but rather something in the local church itself must take action as one body, either privately or publicly. Church discipline may set temporary discouragement to the church, but it must not be in naught to mature the body of Christ. Again, public or private discipline or chastisement matures the church to look to God for His wisdom in the delicate but necessary administration of it. The Apostle Paul does not say what the punishment of the offenders should be in verse 6. But it is clear that the church needed to express it publicly in some clear way. His strong disapproval of what the offenders were doing. Now then, what does it mean for all of us here? No matter how we feel about the continuous or the continuously disobedient in our church, we need to let Christ capture our will to do the godly and right thing. Though it may, though we may be hurt and discouraged in the short term. The capture of the will in Christ to do God's will for the church is a trait of maturity in Christ. To be sure, we must do it with the other traits of maturity in our text. We must do it with the meekness and gentleness of the heart. And we must do the warfare of the mind against our first inclination and sinful nature to tear down others. I was greatly encouraged and impressed when I attended, attended the Presbyterian Church in America General Assembly about three weeks ago. I witnessed the traits of maturity among the presbyters firsthand. It is as if, like the text here, the text described here, like it just jumped out of the pages. 2,300 over teaching and ruling elders attended the meeting representing many churches, definitely more than the number of registered churches in Singapore, the largest turnout in the history of PCA. And by the way, PCA is a quite a small denomination as compared to the evangelical in America. It's the largest turnout because we need to do warfare 
of the minds in the debates of crucial matters to improve the health of the church. There is one contentious issue to pass what we call an overture, right? That will, it's like a proposal basically to the floor and then later on to be passed to, to become the bylaws in the book of church order. This crucial and contentious issue is for every regional presbytery to discipline a category of disobedience against God's word and our confessions of faith. There were debates. There were point taken. Committee minority, minority reports were reported. There were no denials. There were no sugarcoating. And finally, the votes were cast. Now, I'm glad to report that it was done in a most godly, courtly, and yet family and orderly manner that I have observed so far in my life. I'm greatly thankful for it. General Assembly is the highest court of the church denomination, but also a family of elders. Many I saw and encountered display the traits of maturity, gentleness and meekness in the hearts, warfare in the minds, the capture of the will to do what is right in God's word. I am humbled and I want to tell you I'm far away from them, but I'm inspired to be like them. The PCA rests on more than 250 more years of labor of their church fathers and mothers of faith who anchor their faith on the covenant of Christ, the promise of many generations of the faithful. Now, comparing that with the, with the Southeast Asia region, some pastors and I, through even the Zoom this couple of weeks, we have reckoned that we are at the infant stage. But I want to ask all of us here, be encouraged, my brothers and sisters. Cast your sights into the future generations of the faithful. God will do what we cannot. Christ has given us a new heart and a new mind. Now, let Christ capture our will to do God's will in His Word. And for the sake of Christ, His body, and the church, and for the covenant generations. Let this be done so. Let this be done with meekness and gentleness. Let this be done with the warfare of the mind against our own sinful nature. The capture of the will to love God, Christ Himself. Let us encourage one another to Christian maturity, contending for the gospel truth of Jesus for the generations. Now, this is the word of God preached. Now, in order to encourage 